Welcome to another episode of RVA Dirt's Municipal Mania, heard every Wednesday on WRIRLP 97.3 FM Richmond Independent Radio at 11 o'clock a.m. sharp. Yeah. All right. Today we've got a fun guest. I'm going to let him introduce himself and then I will praise him a little bit and then we will get into the show. <laughs> uh, I am Eric Stagletter. I'm the uh, director of PR and marketing at the Valentine. There's a lot of stuff we got going on at the Valentine. Yeah, he's got lots of stuff going on the Valentine, lots of stuff going on in life. New 40 under 40. Yeah. Media luminary Eric Stagletter. Welcome to the club. <laughs> <laughs> All the prestige. Oh, yes. It feels, it feels great. It does. It actually is kind of a fun it is. award. And it's so really cool. I do hope you enjoy it. Oh, yeah. Also, you do a few other things in the community, and I kind of would like you to toot your horn just a second. Oh, so I am on the executive board of the Metro Richmond Young Democrats. And so now is a you know really fun time uh, to be knocking doors, just connecting voters. Also just joined the board of directors for the LGBT Chamber of Commerce. And so that is just a really fun um, opportunity to work with a lot of really great people in the city, doing some really great advocacy work on behalf of businesses that are either LGBTQ owned or LGBTQ allied, and just really trying to work with people that have been on the board for a while to kind of learn the ropes and hopefully do good work on behalf of folks in the city. All right. Way to be. You mm-hmm. work at the Valentine. What's going on there these days? First of all, I'm going to do a real quick, the boring, what is the Valentine thing? Oh, please do it. In yeah, case yeah. anybody hasn't been there or doesn't know. Just uh, in case. Just in case. Let's um, do it. So it's one of the oldest museums in Richmond, and it's been around since 1898. The little piece of trivia you can take away is that the whole reason the museum exists in the first place is because Man Valentine, the founder, his wife was always sick. And whenever she would go to doctors, they couldn't figure out what was wrong. And so it being the time that it was, you patented your own medicine. And so he came up with something called Valentine's Meat Juice. Mmm, <laughs> so good and tasty. Just from a PR marketing point, I don't know if I would have chosen that name. No, but it is definitely one of my favorite things. It's evocative, about the, for sure. the Valentine, little tidbits <laughs> of info. That's so fun. Um, but you would, uh, so the the process would go you would take cooked beef you would press it add alcohol and spices and then it would it was bottled and his wife ended up taking it she said she felt better and so it became like mass produced and it, that's how he made his fortune and that's ultimately how the museum started so we medicinal have medicinal Worcestershire sauce I mean mostly yeah it, 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 now that you said it's funny because it was made up through the 80s most people think that it kind of died out and it stopped being used as a tonic but it was made up through the 80s, and there were, I think, Valentine-specific or meat juice-specific uh, cocktails you can get around town. Mm. I think it was like Bloody Marys and stuff made with meat juice. We still have, like, we sell, I mean, people love the stuff with, the val- like, the meat juice logo on it. The the baby onesie is actually one of my favorite things. It is so precious. <laughs> <laughs> my, my, my son had one for a while. He outgrew it, but I would just, I love to get, see him, like, little boy with this bright yellow meat juice onesie on it was awesome so great so what's going on lately there we are a you know a small but mighty museum so we always have something going on we have you know rotating exhibitions we do about 450 walking tours a year and that program has been taking place on and off since the 1940s so we have kind of a a strong history there of doing these really interesting walking tours across the city Uh, we have special events we have programming all kinds of stuff the stuff we have going on currently so right now we are kind of knee deep in our controversy history series Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And that is something that RVA Dirt has been an awesome partner with and li- live tweeting these events um, and just making sure that folks who can't get out are able to kind of see what's going on and look at the data, look at the history and that kind of thing. So that's been, thank you for being a part of that. No problem. We do it because we really believe in the series. What are some of the topics that you guys have hit on in the past mm-hmm. and where we're going in the future with it? Because, sure. Um, um, I want people to understand yeah, yeah. the impact it's not just it's not fluff that's mm. what I, the topics aren't fluff Thank is what i'm trying to um yeah so the this is i guess we're heading to the third season of controversy history um third year of controversy history and the whole series is kind of built around not just having an opportunity for people to come together and have conversations about difficult topics but also like for them to hopefully understand that these topics are the same topics we've been debating in richmond since almost the founding of the city. So we've tackled things like our very first event, for instance, was about voting rights. And so the historical piece that we talked about was the fact that in Richmond, like leading up to the adoption of the 19th Amendment, there was a lot of debate in town between women who worked in the same social circles, but who had very different ideas about who should be able to vote. And so you had a woman like Lila Mead Valentine, who was part of our institution, who was a member of the suffrage movement. And then you had other women in town who were, again, part of that same social circle, Mrs. Dooley over at uh, Maymont, but also other Valentines within the Valentine family who were members of the national anti-suffrage movement. And so we delve into that history and you kind of think about, you know, there were these women that were seeing each other in town, seeing each other at different events, and that they both had radically different ideas about who should be able to vote. That was the history that we talked about. And then we kind of fast forwarded to today and we talked about, so what are the issues facing voting rights today? And so there is no major discussion about whether women should be able to vote, but there are other barriers for other people to vote. And so maybe the the specific individuals have changed in terms of who has access, but the idea of access and the idea of people working to make that access more difficult, that is still a relevant discussion. So instead of talking about women's access to the ballot legally, we're talking about other legal challenges that make it difficult for people to vote or make it more difficult for them to get the identification they need to prove that they can vote. Once we tell that history, we had that night we had um, speakers from U of R Law School to talk about gerrymandering and slicing up districts and making racial gerrymandering, political gerrymandering, that kind of thing. And so the whole idea was to hopefully bring in an audience and let them see that while some of the players may have changed and obviously that the technology has changed, this very basic idea of who should be able to vote and you know what rules should be in place has been something we've been discussing since the very beginning and so that was the very first event we held and then since then we've kind of we've done events on transportation we've done events on immigration we've talked about monuments we've talked about a variety of different things and so the whole point of the series is to hopefully be responsive to the community so not just talk about controversial subjects but also controversial subjects that are that are being discussed in the Richmond community at the time and so we for instance when we did last year there was n- when we first planned out our entire series, there was the the issue of monuments wasn't something that had really risen to the surface. And then it kind of, there was a big discussion that, that kind of um, cropped up and we decided that we couldn't do this series in good conscience without addressing this very big issue with Richmond being the formal capital confederacy, having so many, many of the monuments that people were talking about. And so we decided to kind of change our program and include an, uh, 
an event based around monuments. So this year, we're going down a similar road in terms of being flexible and responsive to the community. And so we are partnering with Rich and 300 in a way so that since Rich and 300 is the master planning process, and they're kind of getting community input and doing all these different programs and events, our goal with partnering with them was to kind of delve into, so what did the what did it what did it used to look like when people would do city planning and also i think more importantly to drive home the point that city planning sounds like this kind of amorphous maybe even boring thing that like how does that affect me but just simply talking about okay so the event we have coming up november 5th talk about city planning so early on in richmond's history we will talk about um how the growth of the city through transportation and that includes the building of highways but also parking and that kind of thing, how that disrupted communities, not only that, but also burial spaces. And so you you think about the building of I-95 right through Jackson Ward, the displacement of thousands of families. But the other thing is because there was so little knowledge and so many different things have been done with different burial grounds for African-Americans that people didn't even know it was an issue. So you had these areas where bodies were buried and no one even had a clue. So when they're building parking lots and stuff like that, there's 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 even there's no way to be to push back against it because you know, one burial ground had been used once as a dump and then as a cold field and then as something else. And it'd been, you know, different uses over time so that as, you know, people are pushing back against the city for the destruction of their homes in Jackson Ward. Meanwhile, there's also this parking paving issue going on on burial grounds that no one even had a clue until years later. Um, so that's kind of what we're talking about at the beginning that we're fast forwarding to today and talking about. So what is what does parking policy look like in Richmond today? And then the I think the thing that's going to be most interesting is having a speaker come in and they're going to kind of challenge the people in the room to think about a city that might not need parking. So I know a lot, a lot of the discussion is about do we need parking? Do we need more parking? You know, um, and that's kind of this very kind of juxtaposed, juxtaposing less parking, more parking. But we're going to have a conversation about if we're looking to grow as a city and we're looking to accept, you know, the number of people that, you know, plan to move to the region over the coming years and we're going to grow and we're going to prosper. Does that mean more parking or does that actually mean getting away from parking and looking at alternative forms of transportation or different ways to address it? And how do we continue to do to do that growth in a ethical, sustainable manner that still respects the history of communities? Um, yeah, so hopefully it'll be this really interesting look at history, look at what's going on today, and then also this kind of a challenge of the audience to think about parking and transportation in a, in a new way. I, I don't think a lot of people actually think deeply about parking. I mean, I think we are thinking a lot more clearly about transportation in this city, but I don't think a lot of people have sat down, had the deep thought about how the history of transportation has really affected this city and it's divided it and con- mm-hmm. and continued the segregation of this city in so many ways and actually I was really fascinated by the last mm-hmm. controversy history when we talked about master plans yeah. so the city of Richmond loves a master plan mm-hmm. we have master plans for everything we've had multiple <laughs> ones but the Richmond 300 one to me seems a little bit different this time and I was really excited to hear that you guys had partnered with that and then we had started off the new season of controversy history talking about this process and how the the 1946 master plan of what's the name Bartholomew right yep the Bartholomew plan yeah, yeah it completely has its tentacles into Richmond and it just has has not moved it really has shaped the way we're completely laid out the way we are segregated the way our school systems are set up I mean everything our access to food yeah um, our access to 
public transportation, our access to government areas, everything. Yeah, because we knew about the Bartholomew Plan. We had started researching it because we knew we wanted to include it in this discussion, especially since we're doing a, for the first event in this series, kind of just a, uh, a basic overview of the, the planning history in Richmond. But it was interesting as, as you know, our intern worked on the research, as I worked on the research, as our um, director of programs, Liz, worked on the research, we found that, like you said, that this Bartholomew plan kind of set the stage for so much that came after it to the point where even though the, the, the Bartholomew plan became kind of adopted in 1946, you see the, the Bartholomew plan evolve over time. And even as the city adopts different ideas and different things, it continues to influence decision-making to the point where an entire community, historic Fulton, is destroyed and demolished based on the initial findings and analysis of the Bartholomew Plan in 46. Like, it calls for the destruction of blighted areas. And if you look at the maps of blighted areas, and then you look at the map right beside it that says areas where African Americans live, you can literally put the maps on top of each other and they cover the exact same ground. It's like, yeah, we're just going to throw out this term blighted. Yeah. To get rid of the areas mm-hmm. that we think, yeah, you know, it's holding us up from progress. So yeah. we're just going to slap this term on it and everybody will think, <gasps> yeah, you know, yeah, filthy drug dens. Exactly. Yeah. And so even though the plan is, you know, adopted in 46, fast forward 20, 30 years later, and you all of a sudden see this, you know, this historic neighborhood that is completely flattened and destroyed, not based on necessarily... I mean, there's obviously a lot of discussion going on, but the, the the kernel of that decision to destroy a neighborhood was based on a plan from 1946 that was that called for the destruction of blighted areas, and that evolved and changed and stuck with decisions the city made until the, the real-life repercussion is you see an entire community wiped off, literally wiped off the map. Um, and so when we, when we talk about that discussion and then we talk about Rich and 300 – the idea is to see, okay, these are the, the, the decisions that were made in the past. These are the decisions that the city of Richmond made. These are the decisions that people in power made. So can we, as the city's, one of the city's oldest history museums, can we provide enough context and enough history and enough analysis and hopefully just enough kind of uncomfortable truths to help play a small role in making sure that the decision-making going forward um, takes that pass into account and takes that pain and that hurt into account. And hopefully it'll result in a decision-making process that's more open, that's more inclusive, and that hopefully represents the people of the city well. And so we're really excited to be partnering with Richmond 300. And I think it also helps just, again, gather even more community input and makes it even more possible to have that kind of like inclusive dialogue that you need to have when you're making these kind of decisions. I like how you mentioned uncomfortable truths. Now you are trying to rope the community in more and have their input. So when you tell these uncomfortable truths, what are the reactions that you get? Uh, I mean, it, it. I think in general, we tend to have a pretty receptive crowd. Um, I think, you know, being being the Valentine and being seen as kind of a, you know, an institution in Richmond. One, we, one, we have a great staff. We have a fantastic board and they're all on, you know, all on board to kind of tell the good and the bad and the ugly of Richmond's stories. And so, you know, so for instance, I guess the, the best thing I can do is give an example. So when you walk into the Valentine there, we always have a rotating thing of exhibitions, but we have a one permanent exhibition that's kind of dead center as you walk in, walk to the, to the right. And it is called, this is Richmond, Virginia. 
it kind of tells the story of Richmond, not chronologically, but it tells it thematically. So there obviously are strengths to telling things, you know, in the order they happened, but also it's easier if you're telling it thematically to draw parallels and draw lines and connect things that you might not necessarily connect. So there is one section called, what do we produce? You're walking through there and you see things that automatically jump out at you, right? As you know, you see um, craft beer and you see banking. I mean, we had the Federal Reserve. You see um, Reynolds Tin. You see um, a variety of different things that automatically jump out to you. Is oh, that, those are things that were or are produced in Richmond. And then right in the center, you also see a flogger from times of enslavement. And if you were telling that story chronologically, that flogger and the images of the beer cans would be separated by not just years, but by actual distance in the museum. That you might not make the connection, but the fact that those two industries at different times in Richmond's history were seen as just normal, everyday things that you did. And so when we talk about, for instance, you know, the we have a historic house on our site called the Wickham House. And what did John Wickham do when he needed to develop a workforce? He sent someone down to Shaco Bottom to buy or rent a person. And so that is acknowledging the fact that Richmond was one of was the second largest site of the domestic slave trade acknowledging that fact and then talking about it, but also talking about it within the context of other industries. I think it can be uncomfortable, but it also, I think, really drives the point home that this history hasn't really left us. As much as we might not want to talk about it or as much as we might want to, if not ignore, at least downplay because it's just an uncomfortable thing to talk about. The fact that the city that I live in was built on the backs of however many hundreds of thousands between 350,000 to 500,000 men and women who were brought through Richmond and then sold south, that's an uncomfortable thing to talk about. Yeah, and the building that you're inhabiting every day. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And so... Same thing. Yeah. So it's an uncomfortable conversation to have, but it's also, I think because it's uncomfortable, it's also really important to have. Because once you get it out in the open and talk about it, then you can start figuring out not just we agree that we know that this is Richmond's past, but then once you talk about it, then how do we do better? How do we improve and make sure that the city that we live in now obviously, you know, is is growing and changing in a way that is inclusive, is diverse, is accepting, accepts its history and is trying really hard to do better. And I think just telling those stories might seem um, easy to do, but just some of the the face the looks on people's faces we see when we tell stories like that you see them hear those stories but hopefully you also see them you the valentine as a place where they can not just learn about that history but reckon with it and come to a point where they you know this is the uncomfortable history of the city that i call home what can i do now to make sure that and who can i work with and who can i reach out to and which communities have i not been engaged with that i can engage with now that can make this city the best it can be and all of what you're saying right there, the Valentine absolutely excels at that over any museum I've been to in town. I'm saying, I'm not, you know, I'm not just like patting you on the back or whatever. Y'all really do excel in that sort of thing and the engagement, the drawing of the community in, the education, like this is the ugly truth, this is the way it is, but here, let me help you figure out how you can do better, how we can all do better together. And you're not going to, you're not going to get that anywhere else. So thank you guys so much. You guys discuss all kinds of topics. You have 
amazing exhibits all the time. What's your process? How do you guys figure out what you're going to focus on, what the exhibit's going to be this time, uh, and like your research process? What do you guys do? Sure. So, I mean, like, again, I I mentioned that we are small but mighty. So we have a small curatorial staff. We have three curators. We have a curator kind of that oversees the general collection. We have a curator that deals specifically with archives. And we have a curator that deals specifically with costume and textiles. And so they kind of come together and they develop kind of what they see as the next five years of exhibitions, but with a focus on being flexible and adaptable to make sure that even though our exhibitions are kind of focusing on issues that we're always dealing with, but making sure they're also timely. For instance, when... We were heading into the um, kind of right before the big monument debate started. There was no monument exhibition planned. And then this thing started happening. The debate started taking place. It started talking about specifically about monuments in Richmond, started talking about Monument Avenue. And it kind of became clear that in order for us to be the museum that we said we wanted to be, we couldn't ignore that debate. And so we asked our curator at the time to do something that curators never do, which is turn a full exhibition on in six months. And Ooh. yeah. And so it was, you know, it was a lot, but it was also the the right thing to do for the community and for us as an institution. And again, our board was totally supportive of that. Our staff was on board. And so that was, that turned out to be, it was called Monumental. Um, and it looked at not just the Monuments of Monument Avenue, but it looked at 40 plus public monuments in the city, how they got there. So, I mean, everyone, you know, you talk about Robert E. Lee, you talk about Jeb Stewart, but you also, you know, there, we have a monument to Columbus in the city. Yeah. I've never understood our monument to Columbus. I guess maybe because we had a large Italian population in the Highland Park area and they... And and so we had a you know, you know idolize that, yeah the north side used to be a, you know predominantly um, Italian immigrant community and then you had so many issues taking place in town we actually this was part of the controversy history where we talked about it but there was a big big issue that arose in town this is a, such a uniquely Richmond debate even <laughs> the the KKK who was center to this debate couldn't decide couldn't agree amongst themselves who to hate. Oh, my God. And we don't know, (laughs) should it include Catholics or not include Catholics? And so there was a split in the KKK in Richmond. And but you definitely saw a lot of the um, the Catholic community feel put upon, feel um, ostracized. And so a lot of the Italian Catholics in town who also butted head with Irish Catholics, they pushed to have this Columbus statue erected as a way to say, this this town, this country, this state, you know, this area that you say we don't belong in, one of our ancestors actually dis- we're we're essential to your founding. Um and there's a there's a lot there's a lot there. There's a ton there, but it We don't have enough time to unpack <laughs> all that today. <laughs> but but it, it is interesting to say that so if you just walk by and you see the monument to Columbus, you go, What what does that have to do with Richmond? Right. But there's a whole story there. And just like with every single monument, there's a story there. And so oftentimes that monument right there isn't necessarily about Columbus. It's about a community in Richmond that felt ostracized and demonized. And so they raised money amongst themselves and actually had um, someone, an, an Italian immigrant in town who worked with stone and who worked with, you know, who did work with things like that to construct it and, and design it. So the, a lot of the monuments we'll see around town, and we talk about that in the um, that exhibition, that first one, aren't really about what they 
what they depict. They're about an idea or a concept or power or lack thereof. And so that first exhibition was this real big kind of just a, a, a data dump of context from the very first monument in, in Richmond in terms of what was established by English settlers. We talk about the 1607 Christopher Newport Cross. Mm-hmm. And that thing has moved, I think, three times. Um, it's at its third location now, but it continues to move upriver. It's now, I think it's it's right on the canal. But so you're walking up and all of a sudden you're headed to dinner. And all of a sudden you see this this kind of big ornate cross. And, you know, what is that? Well, it used to, it's at its third location. There used is that because they historically they figured out that it needed to move? No, because actually just... it's further back was more accurate. So um, I'm not 100% sure Just why it moved to, to its third location. make way for restaurants and I suppose. Um, but then also there was a monument to Henry Clay on Capitol Square that I think now his actual monument is inside. If you walk into the, like the public entrance of the General Assembly building, you see him there off to the side. But there, at one moment, he was actually on Capitol grounds, like surrounded by this big portico. But then you think about his role, he was born, you know, in Virginia, but then you think about his role, he was focused, you know, primarily on keeping the union together. And in the 1930s, when we're having these discussions and there's still a lot of feelings and emotions and anger about the outcome of the Civil War, he might not be the person that you want on Capitol grounds. And so, all of a sudden, the General Assembly said, the portico that surrounds him is rotting. We don't have the money to fix it, so we're just going to tear that down and move him inside. And so, say what you will, but Richmond has a long and storied history of moving, taking down, relocating monuments. It's a, it's one of our favorite pastimes. <laughs> if you look at... Um, so don't be afraid if it happens <laughs> again, guys. If if you look at, just, I'm just going through that exhibition, you see the number of monuments that were either proposed that were built and then moved, that were built and then destroyed. It's kind of a commonplace occurrence. Yeah. So I just think that's so amusing. People think, oh, but if you take it down, you're erasing history. And I'm like, the historical moment doesn't go away because you've busted up some marble. Okay. And now that I know that it's a fine Richmond tradition, I'm going to be letting people know that as a counterpoint <laughs> on and a regular the, so, basis. But my, my favorite my favorite monument that never got built, and I wish it did, was the Salvador Dali monument. Yes! Like, what, what Richmond? What yeah. were you thinking? Salvador Dali wants to give you guys a monument, and the you're almost, like, nah, uh, pass. Uh, I, the, Are you kidding? <laughs> can we... Can we Bring that back. Can we we almost had <laughs> a image of Sally Tompkins, who was a, a Confederate nurse, but we had an image of Sally Tompkins on a mushroom, and she had a sword, and she was fighting off what was supposed to be a germ, but almost looked like a Chinese dragon. Ugh. And the top of the mushroom was, was, I guess, balanced on top of a finger. And all this is supposed to be made of Reynolds metal. But here's the thing that I didn't know until the exhibition opened, which is my favorite thing. It was going to be bright pink. What? So can you imagine <sighs> that on Monument Avenue? Oh, my God. Yeah. Oh, my God. Oh. There are images, I believe, of Salvador Dali in town with his pet ocelot on his shoulder, touring Richmond, looking at where his monument was going to go. Huh. I wonder why that didn't get approved. <laughs> That's the one. That's the one that I want to see. That's the that's the next monument. Well, they're doing this monument for women. I mean, you might as well just go. Ahead. I mean, if you're going to have the 
isn't she included in this she one? Is, she is. Right. Mm-hmm. So why don't we just yeah. replace her image with that? Give her a sword. There'll be a Chinese dragon-like microbe on, fighting on a Don't even mushroom. need acid to enjoy. Bright pink. Perfect. You are smack dab in the middle of another f***ing epic episode of RVA Dirt's Municipal Mania. Mania, 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 mania. Heard every Wednesday at 11 a.m. on WRIRLP 97.3 FM Richmond Independent Radio. It was two years ago now I had the pleasure of having a private archive moment of Northside photos for uh, my birthday and it was really awesome and I loved seeing the amazing amount of stuff that you don't see mm-hmm. on a regular basis yeah so how did the Valentine go about collecting all this stuff and in the future what is it that you look for when you are collecting now yeah um, so, I mean, we have, since we've been around since 1898, I mean, we have, you can just imagine, you know, the objects and the images. It smells amazing, by the way. <laughs> if you are somebody who likes that old book smell or old, you Make know. an appointment. Stop by our archives. You know, as you can imagine, you know, 1898 with, you know, that that kind of involvement in the community and engaging with people, you know, across um, the Richmond area, you're, you're going to collect uh, a, a wide range of different things, of fascinating photos of interesting objects of these different things that tell Richmond's history as when it comes to collecting today I think our goal is really focused on not just collecting interesting Richmond stories but collecting interesting Richmond stories from communities that are underrepresented because it's not just enough to tell interesting stories because we can do that forever um, but it's also important to make sure that we are telling the stories of communities that whose stories have gone either untold or whose voices have been dampened to the point where they can't tell their own stories. So just as a for instance, several years ago, we did an exhibition called Nuestras Historias, which was the story of the Latino community in Richmond, Henrico, Chesterfield, Hanover, that kind of central Virginia region. And it was the first exhibition, I believe, in the region that was also bilingual. Not just bilingual, but also Spanish was the first language. And so people would walk in and they would look at the wall and they would look at the, you know, where the text copy would be and have to and go, oh, wait, and then look below. And that's where they would find the English. But that, that kind of thing, which, you know, there were so many people. I remember the, the, we had a, an opening day celebration called a family day. And we had, you know, people from across the region who were for the first time seeing their story told in the museum and seeing it told in a way that respected their history, their story, their family, their culture, and also in a way that I think captured what they felt it meant to be a Richmonder. So, for instance, we had things on display like a pair of shoes that a gentleman wore that he used when he first stepped into America. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Um, And he kept them forever. And so we had those on display. And so if you walk in the room, you just see a pair of shoes. Like, what's that? But it's the story that goes along with them. And what, obviously, what that those pair of shoes meant to that one man um, to keep them um, says a lot. And so that's a story that might have gone untold. But because we, you know, 
worked with a really great um, advisory committee and had a great um, staff that were you know working with us and you know getting us directly involved in the community. I know we work with Sacred Heart Cathedral a lot, but just reaching out and finding these stories and then not just telling them, but allowing either the objects to speak for themselves or letting the people tell the story themselves. Um, so we weren't just collecting objects, we were collecting stories from these people. You know, we have some images of some of the people featured in the exhibition seeing their objects on display. And it's just, it's this really kind of validating moment where you feel like, you know, hey, there hasn't been a bilingual exhibition in the Central Virginia area before. Will people show up? You know, there hasn't been an exhibition that delves into this topic for, in this specific area. Like, will people be interested? And so a lot of times it's just kind of, obviously you want people to come to the museum and it's, but it's also making sure that you're telling the stories that you need to tell. Um, what's, you know, um, balancing between what you think will get people in the doors, but also what is part of your mission as an institution that's been around in the city since 1898. If that mission demands that you tell challenging, interesting Richmond stories to a wide variety of audiences about a wide variety of audiences that means doing exhibitions like that and that's one of the reasons why i'm proud to work at the valentine so speaking of object what's the oldest object the valentine has do you know oh wow um if i so if i wonder yeah so i mean if i had to my my first guess because so i don't have a one object in my head right now um but if i had to guess i would imagine it would be so when the valentine started in 1898 it started in the Wickham House. So the, so the Valentines purchased the Wickham House and turned it into a museum. And at that time, it was kind of a, a catch-all museum. And so that co that private collection had a lot of objects that Man Valentine and his brother Edward had. And so I imagine it would be one of those, but a lot of those items were part of, let's see, they were probably part of different cultural and anthropological um, items that have long since been returned. Well, I would imagine that one of the oldest objects would probably be from that original Valentine collection. But yeah, I don't have a single one, unfortunately. Like I wish I knew and like, you know, something like from Indiana Jones, like that one object that's sitting on a pedestal in our uh -huh. collection. Um, I know we have, I mean, we have a lot of really fascinating objects, but the, the oldest, that actually, you know, I might have to go back on Monday, go back to work and just go to the curatorial team and ask like, what's the oldest thing we got? So if I ever get that question again, I'm, I'm not stumped. I just, I think I, I would love to know. Mm -hmm. And I will definitely update this if you find out. Yeah. <laughs> uh, because, you know, I, I just, I'm fascinated by ancient things. Is there anything that you guys have gone after that you've not been able to get or something that there is out there that you want really badly mm -hmm. to put on display? So I do know that, so I've been at the Valentine for, at Valentine for two years. And so this is before my time, but I love it because it was a pen that we thought was going to be very difficult to get. And it wasn't, but it is a, it's the pen. We have it on display now. It's one of my favorite objects. I have plenty, so we can talk about a lot, Ooh. but, um, it's the pen that was used to sign the 1902 Constitution. And that is the pen that, well, that is the Constitution that was passed in 1902 that basically enshrined Jim Crow into law. Yes. Oh. And it's a small object. And I remember talking to our director about it and assuming that it had must have been a, um, a really difficult thing to get. And it apparently came to us rather easily, but it is, it's one of those things that you have that object on display and you just with a little context, you realize that this one pen and the, the, you know, this, this one object set the stage for 
issues we're dealing with today in 2019. Just just the, the stroke of a pen over the course of a few seconds. Well, it just makes yeah. a story like that makes an inanimate object kind of come alive. Yeah. Like it really mm-hmm. is a powerful thing, even though to somebody walking by, oh, it's just a pen. Yeah. But with the stroke of that pen, you condemned yeah. so many... Mm-hmm. Any any progress that had been made, oh my gosh. you get a uh, a state that has adopted a constitution that re- you know relegates African Americans and and poor whites too to kind of second class citizenship, yeah. and it stays that way. And you see, post Civil War, there was kind of a little bit of hope, you know, during Reconstruction and the readjuster period, right? Um, you kind of see that maybe things might go a certain way. And there, even in Virginia, there's this party called the Readjusters, which is this very weird, odd party that no one knows about, but they they had developed their own constitution and they called for like universal education and these different things. And you see- Way ahead of their time. Right, right. And you see this state kind of slowly going in one direction and then it veers off into another. And that's the- that's the one that you know that adopted the 1902 constitution and set the stage for you know so many of the issues that we're still talking about debating about fighting about today so yeah that's fascinating so what are your other favorite objects you have a couple of things you want to talk about because i I love knowing personal favorites so when i go in there yeah you know it's nice to know my one of my favorite objects is it's actually it was on display and then it got uh, replaced with another object because it had been on display for a while but it was actually one of the original war costumes Yes. Um, back when they were still VCU students. I was going to say that yeah. was one of my favorite too. And I believe That's it great. was called the Duke of Dogma, which I just, I adore. Yeah. But I remember so. walking into the Valentine the first time and you see, you know, a portrait of John Marshall and you see the different things and all of a sudden you see war and I had to do a double take. But then you realize like if the Valentine is this repository of Richmond history, that is a big part of Richmond history. Huge. And it's, it was in our section about what do we value. And so it, you know, it had things like it had a, a part of the original maquette of the Arthur Ashe statue. It has a bust of George Washington. And so, you know, do are we do we believe in the ideals of Washington? Do we believe, you know, what about his failings? Do we believe in the promise of Arthur Ashe? Or are we just big heavy metal fans? Like, right. or can are we all the above? And I just love the fact that a museum would have those things in the exact same cabinet and would collect those items and because look, you're telling a you know a story, a valuable story, and a diverse story. You have to have all kinds of things. So just so I, I love it because it's it was it's a cool object, but I also love what it means for the whole museum. I think that there are there are a lot of different objects. So there's also this might be a cheat, but I think it counts. So we have a current an exhibition currently on display. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you two. They're both from exhibitions currently on display just because I've seen them recently, but my favorites kind of go, they, they evolve. So one, we have an exhibition on display from, uh, it's a photograph collection from the Cook Collection. Um, that's a cl- photographic collection we acquired in 1954. It's like 10,000 plate glass negatives of this father and son who moved to Richmond from South Carolina because they weren't making any money. And they just happened to move to Richmond at like the, the most interesting time where we are it's post-Civil War, so the city's rebuilding itself. It's looking forward, but it's also looking back and like yearning for a past that's never coming back again. And so you get this, you just get this really fascinating kind of cultural moment where they're taking photos. But there's this one photo, and I specifically remember it's a group of African-Americans having a picnic in Bonaire. And the reason I love that photo so much, and it's actually on our external signage. I chose it for one of our external signs because I think it's it's so powerful. It is a group of African-American individuals having a picnic, and they're dressed 
the nines. They're like, you know, wearing the the fanciest of clothes. And I love that picture because one, pop culture has told us what African-Americans looked like at that time. And this picture completely subverts that. We've been taught by movies and TV that this is what this was the experience of every single African-American at that time. And to see these individuals having their photo taken at a picnic where they're wearing beautiful clothes, but they're also, if you look at the the looks on their faces, they are proud and they are, they're there with their family. And it's this kind of very evocative image that completely flies in the face of what pop culture tells us that things were like. And so I just love that image so much because it, people see it and they're, they're not sure what year it's from. And when you tell them early, early 20th century, like post-Civil War, they're like, what, what? Um, so I love that because it's also kind of that moment where you can say, this is what the Valentine does. Um, the other object I really, really like is it's on another, it's another exhibition that we have currently on display um, called Dressing Identity. And so that is a two-part exhibition that tells, kind of dives into how Richmonders have expressed themselves by what they wear. And so one side is kind of how Richmonder, it's a, it's a room full of objects about how Richmonders have, you know, shown who they are by what they wear. The other side is like a working lab that kind of shows how the Valentine has showed Richmonders who they are, you know, by how we build um, objects, how we build, um, how we dress a mannequin, how we build a mannequin, that kind of thing. So it's definitely meta. It's meta. Yeah. Um, but one of my favorite objects in the in one of the rooms is from the founder of the Virginia Holocaust Museum, and it is a Stetson hat. But I was hoping you'd mention that. It is a Stetson. I was so struck by it with a menorah on the front. Mm-hmm. And when you think about those two things, you wouldn't necessarily put those two things together. You wouldn't think about those those two types of identities together. Mm-hmm. And the fact that it comes together in one, and because it was from the founder of this powerful institution um, that tells this powerful story, just the fact that if all you need is that hat on display and a little description, and that t- yep. says so much about you know how he viewed himself, how he viewed the Jewish community in Richmond and their role in the community. And so that is just another, a really powerful object that isn't the first thing you'd imagine, but it also, it it strikes you when you see it, like you said. I was totally drawn to it right away. Mm -hmm. I was like, what is that? I have to know. One of my favorite things that was fairly recent when you guys had us come and live tweet the fashion stuff, the clothing of Daphne Maxwell Reed. Mm-hmm. was really fascinating to me and she's a beautiful seamstress and yeah. unbelievable had no idea that that's what she did and recently she actually to me in my mind was actually brought forward when tyler perry uh made his studio mm-hmm. uh, in atlanta yeah and people didn't mention daphne maxwell reed and tim reed and their studio that they began out was it petersburg, petersburg yeah as a new millennium yeah. Nobody was talking about that. Yeah. And that's another thing maybe that uh, Richmond has a huge claim to fame there that they're not really embracing. Y'all look into the reeds. Yeah, absolutely. I'm saying. Please do. Multi-talented uh, husband and wife yes. duo. That was one of my favorite things there. And that and you said, of course, um, the guar. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mask. I just, uh, I, I was, I've always been struck by <laughs> the juxtaposition of some really old kind of, you know, yeah. What you would expect, you know, Richmond History Museum to have. And then you have this 
gore mask. Yeah. This art piece that is just incredible. Um, and so the way you guys put your uh, exhibits together is really fascinating. To if, me. if you, so here's a little tidbit. If you come into the Valentine and if you either park in our parking lot or enter through the back way, you will see some signage on light posts. That is the best way to enter, by the yes. way. Yes. you can and, see all the neon. But everything I've said on this, this, this show is proven to you because if you look up at the light post, there's that picture of the African-American family in Bonaire, and then there's a gore mask that, you know, that is on our official signage. It's that, and then also the first woman mayor of Richmond. She's also featured there. Elizabeth Elizabeth. Parker Shepard. That's right. It's Elizabeth Parker Shepard, and she shares Overby Shepard naming rights of the elementary school. And she never lost an election either. She was elected to city council and then elected by council members to serve as mayor and then resigned mayor to run for the House of Delegates and won that race too. Get it, girl. Yeah. So if you, <laughs> so just for the little inside story, just know like the stuff that we have on our signage outside is just my favorite stuff. And I love the fact that we have, if just you want to get an idea of the diversity of objects, the diversity of stories we tell, we have um, just pulling up outside, you see that family in Bonaire, you see Gwar, you see the first woman mayor of Richmond and then up on... Uh, there's even larger signage where you see an image taken of the civil rights monument. You see the the pride flag that was flown outside of the Federal Reserve in 2011, which we we have on display, and that's also shown outside. We have a um, a street car, an image of a streetcar, and then we also have image um, of a a men's. I guess it's like looks like a vest that um, they would that we have in our collection too. So. Just coming outside, just as you're walking in, just looking at our signage, hopefully that, that in, you know, it asks you to discover Richmond stories, but it also depicts images of these very kind of interesting, thought-provoking uh, pieces of Richmond's past that you might not necessarily put together, but I think it, it sends a message to the people coming in what to expect to see inside. Also, another thing um, I want our listeners to know about that maybe they don't if they're going into the Valentine is there's this cool little courtyard and you go out and there's a room full of heads. (laughs) 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 And it is a creepy and fascinating room. Can you expound a little bit on what's the deal with that? Yeah. So first of all, so yeah, the courtyard is great. It's, It's called the Valentine Garden and it's gorgeous just because like you're in the middle of everything, especially now with all the construction, you're just kind of in this little oasis you know so you have you know um this beautiful seating area you have the back of the wickham house it's gorgeous but yes so as you walk up you see the the edward valentine sculpture studio because edward valentine was one of our founders but he's also a sculptor in town and is also he was the sculptor of the jefferson davis monument yes indeed um and so that's that's another story we needed to tell when we told our monument when we had our monumental exhibition we you know mentioned specifically Edward Valentine sculpted this he did a lot of work in that vein and so when you go inside yeah you see it's a lot of his work and so it's a lot of busts there are death masks in there there are he ended up doing the recumbent Lee that's that's that is I believe where Lee ended up being buried but he did a lot of a lot of statuary for prominent confederates and so that's another that's another piece of the story right is that because of who we are and because of our founding if we're going to talk about monuments, we also have to talk about the role our one of our founders had in the construction design of some of these monuments we're still talking about today. And that was a piece of our um, monumental exhibition. The other piece that I think is interesting, and go- this goes back to one of, my, one of your, what's your favorite item? We have the original cover of the Richmond Times Dispatch when they were for the proposed Davis Monument. And the original proposed Davis Monument 
So right now you think about the Davis Monument that's on Monument Avenue where he's standing there. The original proposed Davis Monument was actually going to be his final resting place, is going to take up all of Monroe Park, and is going to be bigger than the cathedral. I'm all like eyes rolling back in my head trying look to at stay the in picture, my chair. If you look at the picture, Ooh. it is this gigantic golden like ornate piece that um, was on the cover of their time dispatch in, in part to help raise funds for it. And the cornerstone was laid. And that, if you talk about an item we want to get, I would love to find that cornerstone. But they weren't able to raise the funds and ended up giving what funds they had to the Daughters of the Confederacy. But um, just seeing that design and seeing what the plan was, um, and, and ultimately the idea was for it to be larger than Grant's tomb in New York, right? To to kind of stick it to to Grant and his tomb up north. So just seeing that very ornate church-like, larger than the cathedral, taking up Monroe Park as the initial design for the Jefferson Davis mm-hmm. Monument is very, I mean, you definitely, it gives you a, a, a view into what conversations were taking place in Richmond at the time. And it, the fact that it was on the cover of the Times-Dispatch, you know, the paper record. So it is, um, it was on display, that, that a copy of it was on display in our, that monumental exhibition. And it really helps, you know, it, it tells a story for sure. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I have a visceral response to that. <laughs> wow. So we only have a few more minutes, mm-hmm. but before we go, thank you. Oh, absolutely. Eric, for this has been a fascinating conversation and I hope that it draws more people to come to the museum and really learn mm-hmm. about Richmond history. Yeah. Go ahead while we've got some time to plug what you've got going on and our the next uh, controversy history day. Sure. So um like I said we have a kind of evolving set of exhibitions. So right now we have the second part of our monument exhibition called Monument Avenue General Demotion, General Devotion. Um, that's only on display till December 1st. Um, get in there. Get in and come see it. We're featuring 20 different designs. This is the result of like an international design competition to conceptually reimagine Monument Avenue. So these are people from across the globe kind of who have sent in over about 70 of their proposals about what we could do, conceptually do. And the idea is to, there's at no point is, is the, the uh, is the intent to take whatever wins, then hand it over to city council, say, now go do it. <laughs> it's it's <laughs> all conceptual. Yeah. It's all to st- spark conversations. Again, those uncomfortable conversations about what we can do as a city to move forward. So that's currently on display. We have, like I mentioned, dressing identity on display. We have the cook photograph exhibition on display late November, we have an exhibition coming called Ballot Battle. We know that a lot of folks around town and across the country are going to be doing exhibitions about the suffrage movement are, like the Valentine, kind of in keeping with our brand, we're just a little bit different. So we aren't just focusing on the fight for the ballot for women, but we're also looking at it from the perspective of five different people in Richmond who had different ideas about who should be able to vote. So we have Lila Mead Valentine, who was in favor of women getting to vote. We have another Valentine who was not in favor of women getting to vote. We have John Mitchell Jr., who was the editor of The Rich and Planet, who was in favor of universal suffrage. We're highlighting Maggie Walker and her advocacy. Um, But we're also talking about how getting women to vote didn't mean every woman. It meant usually white women. And a lot of the groups were actually more focused on remaining moderate and up that way appealing to more to more white women. Um, and the 19th Amendment wasn't the end of the story. And the fact that black women still hadn't didn't have the right to vote and that Native American women and all these different stories that kind of too often end with the 19th Amendment as the ultimate success when really the story continues and the debate continued. The other interesting piece of that exhibition is that it's being told through the lens of modern day social media. So... 
if you think about how that debate was done, it wasn't done quietly, you know, in, you know, over dining tables quietly so no one heard. It was done out in public. It was done either through public speeches or through pamphlets or broadsides or the new newspaper. So they were using the social media of their day to make their case and try to convince more people. So this way, if you walk down and see this exhibition in late November, you will see Facebook profiles for all these people. You will see Twitter back and forth between Lila Mead and Maggie Walker. You will see likes and dislikes. You will see angry faces. And it might seem kind of funny, and it is interesting at first, and it definitely, will. it's jarring, but you realize really quickly that had they had access to this social media, this is exactly the stuff they'd be doing. But instead, they were using the social media of their time. And they were, you know, throwing a lot of shade at each other. <laughs> Just in, instead of on Twitter, instead of subtweeting someone, they were simply, you know, hitting back at a pamphlet that someone wrote and quoting them and you know calling them names and stuff like that so it's a very interesting approach to tell the story we have a um our curator uh, christina vita is fantastic and this is um this is kind of her brainchild so really excited about that and then on november 5th we have the next controversy history which is called transportation and parking actually well the first title is are we there yet transportation yeah. and parking in richmond and the idea is looking at the i, I know that mentioned this earlier but the um the past debates around transportation and parking. We're going to touch on 95 being built through Jackson Ward. We did a whole event on that last year. So instead, we're going to focus on while that was taking place, it was also the destruction of these African-American burial grounds that was taking place. And no one really knew because those spaces had been used for so many other things. Um, and they were going to fast forward here from someone from the city talking about what does parking look like today? What is the parking like? What are parking policies in place today? And what do you do, perhaps, if you encounter something that might be historic? historically significant. What's the policy in place? And then we're going to hear from someone from Plan RVA to really challenge the audience and ask, as a city to grow, do we even need more parking or do we need to look at alternatives? And then throughout the season, it's the first Tuesday of every month all the way through February. And it is tackling different topics from uh, Black-owned businesses to access to green space. And so we're really excited about this series. Um, hopefully it'll get more people not just involved in controversy history, but also involved in the planning process and know that their voice is essential to it. And then we're also partnered with Gallery 5 on this. So once you attend our event, two weeks later, go to Gallery 5, you get a beer at Gallery 5, which we can't offer. Word. And But also it's this kind of this World Cafe style where if you're really eager to get involved, they will have people there, practitioners who are involved in this stuff so that you can actually figure out, okay, I'm passionate about transportation or I'm passionate about access to green space or I'm passionate about getting involved and increasing black business ownership. There'll be practitioners there to help you. Here are are very specific volunteer opportunities. Here are ways to advocate. Here are ways to talk about this in public with your friends to make this topic something that we talk about more. So it's this event has grown over the course of three years. We have amazing partners. We have amazing funders. Um, and again, all this stuff wouldn't be possible without our, you know, our hardworking staff, our amazing board that, you know, that is supportive of all the quirky things the Valentine does. And then obviously Bill Martin been there 25 years at the helm. I know he doesn't want me to say he's been there 25 years. And I know he really didn't like when we had social media shout outs to him. Um, <laughs> Too bad, Bill. We all really appreciate you. And you just have to accept Deal that. with it. But yeah, so it's we always have something going on at the Valentine, always looking at ways to not only tell diverse, interesting, rich stories, but how we can improve as an institution. And so just, you know, thank you to, thanks for having me on. And thanks to all the people that come visit us or take a tour and, you know, who are interested in discovering more rich stories absolutely and how can folks find the valentine on social media oh it's easy so we we made it um we've 
made the handle very easy, just at the Valentine RVA on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And then you can go to our website at thevalentine.org. You can find our full list of tours, programs, events, everything else. Um, it's all on there. Perfect. And I hope that this episode gets folks to come on out. Yeah, please do come. Uh, you know, I'll probably be there. So just like ask for Eric and I'll come down and run over. And, just say hi. Yeah. And I'll be like really, really probably way too eager to show you some of my favorite objects. So like maybe not ask for me, get like an, a professional and they can they can walk you through. I have to say, though, um, it is a very welcoming environment. So um, and I'm not just saying that as somebody who has been allowed <laughs> to see, you know, <laughs> to get up in there and and uh, live tweet things. But no, seriously, it's a great museum. And I hope that um, everybody goes out and enjoys it and realizes what a gem we have in the valentine thank you thank you so much eric thank you listeners for tuning into today's episode of rva dirt's municipal mania 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 flint still has dirty water and now new jersey does too hmm, maybe somebody should look at ours <laughs> rps is fully funded this year but we still got to fund next year so let's start working on it and as always richmond is still most certainly racist but we're working on it talk to you next week if you'd like to continue this conversation or start another, hit us up across all social media at RVA Dirt, on our website, rvadirt.com, or email us at info at rvadirt.com. RVA Dirt's Municipal Mania, 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 is created and co-hosted by Francesca Lee Davis and Melissa Vaughn and is recorded in the studios of WRIRLP 97.3 FM Richmond Independent Radio. Executive producer, Melissa Vaughn, censorship button tester, Francesca Lee Davis. F-